Well, thank you guys. Welcome back, DC. Glad to have you back. I think, um, I don't know if you noticed, it's, it's October, so Daniel worked in a Christmas song. Did you notice that? Did you catch the Christmas melody there? You thought Advent was only four weeks. Yeah, it's more like four months on Daniel's uh, calendar, so. so glad to have you back, brother. So uh, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, the last few verses of that chapter. That's where we're, uh, where we're at as a church family today. And you can flip there on your phone or open your Bibles up. And the verses will also be on the screen behind me this morning. Um, there's a song from time to time we sing it at North Wake and the lyrics start like this. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life. And then the songwriter, a man named Mark Ultrogi, inserts as the next line what he longs for to be his one magnificent obsession. But before we look at what he writes, um, what would yours be? What would be the next line in the song for you that you would insert as your glorious ambition for your life. Now, if we're being honest, that might for some of us involve fame or accomplishment of some sort, career success, financial success, um, getting married, having kids, having good kids, surviving, having had kids. You know, it could be any of these kinds of things, any number of things. But we're thinking about the thing that gets you up in the morning, the thing you look forward to most, the thing. You order your days around. That, that's your reason for being, we might say. And in this little lyric, the songwriter then channels his inner apostle Paul and pens his one glorious ambition like this. He says, give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. As we've been reading the Apostle Paul lately, especially in this third chapter, I think that's what Paul would like that. He would agree with that language. Um, listen to what Paul's been saying in chapter 3 about his heart, his great, magnificent obsession. In verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Just a couple verses later he says, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection. It's not a bad paraphrase of the Apostle Paul to put what, the way Mark Altrogi said it, to know and follow hard after you. And, and in these few verses... At the back end of chapter 3, um, the Apostle Paul is going to invite us into that same great ambition, right? To know and follow hard after Jesus. So, open your Bibles there. We'll start in verse 17. Let me, let me pray for us as we do. Lord, be kind to us now. Help us. Help us. Help us follow you. Help us see you as more valuable than anything else in our world, on our planet, you as our great treasure, that we might know the joy you have for us. So, Lord, have mercy upon us now through your word, we pray. Amen. All right, verse 17 reads, 
brothers, and of course that's inclusive language for Paul, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. And when you first hear that, it can sound a little bit egocentric, right? Like Paul's saying, hey everybody, be like me, right? But he's already acknowledged, he, hasn't, he knows he hasn't arrived yet. Remember back in verse 12, he said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own, right? He's not perfect. And elsewhere in his writings, he's going to flesh out this little follow me, imitate me idea more fully. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11 where St. Paul writes, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, right? So he's saying to the Philippians, follow me, and what's implied is as I follow Christ, right? This is not, this is not boastfulness. This is really an invitation into the humility of Christ as it's seen in Paul and those who work with him. And there's a couple of things in this little section that are pressing Paul to call the church to follow his example. They're, they're true for us, right? The same things we're going to see make it important that we too follow the example of the apostle Paul and those who follow in his ways. Um, and you'll notice he does make the circle bigger, right? He's, he says it's the people who follow my example. You would also follow. And surely that includes people we've already met in Philippians. Timothy, Epaphroditus in chapter 2. Great examples of Christ followers. And he says they walk this way. Okay? That's a key idea for Paul is they walk this way. They don't just talk this way. They walk this way this way so it shapes their days and their lives and so it's good to ask what does he want us to imitate about him and these people that he has in mind who are following his example and it could be any number of things but again I think the the closest thing in chapter 3 is that passion for Jesus right? you hear it again in verse 14 just a couple verses earlier I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this is Paul's magnificent obsession. And he wants it to be ours too, right? For us to imitate him and those who are of like mind, supremely loving and valuing Jesus above all, all other hobbies, all other things. Right? So let me stop and, and ask you a couple of questions. Who is influencing you these days? Who's shaping what you think and believe and the way you live, what you do? Who's influencing you? And towards what are they influencing you? Is it towards a deeper, fuller desire to know and follow hard after Jesus? You know, there's a survey that was done uh, on the web and they asked 2,000 men, who do you consider your role models? Here are their answers. 8% said they look to actors and entertainers. 24% tried to emulate athletes. 31% said, I'm my own role model. Uh, anyway, 35% said they look to entrepreneurs as role models. And I just want to say, in the church, we have to do better than this in terms of the role models we offer and the ones we choose. 
we have to hitch our wagon to men and women who are loving Jesus more and let them help us, right, in that process. As you reflect on that this afternoon, let me share just a a really encouraging, challenging example. It comes from um, author D.A. Carson. When he was in college, he led an evangelistic Bible study for seekers and skeptics. And he confessed that whenever he felt out of his depths, he would take these skeptics and doubters to a bold witness on their campus. His name was Dave. And on one such occasion, Carson took a young man to Dave, and the young man tells Dave this. He says, look, I come from a family that doesn't believe in a literal resurrection and all that stuff. That's a bit much for us. But we're a fine family, a good church-going family. We love each other, care for each other. We do good in the community. We're a stable family. So what have you got that we don't have? And Dave looked this young man in the eye and he says to him, watch me, move in with me. I have an extra bed, just follow me around. You see how I behave, what's important to me, what I do with my time, the way I talk. You watch me and at the end of three months, you tell me there's no difference. And Carson writes that the young man didn't take Dave up on that offer, but he did keep coming back to watch how Dave lived his Christian life. Eventually, the young man came to follow Christ and went on to become a medical missionary. This is Carson's reflections on that challenge from Dave. He says, it's a Christian, in effect, is saying, I'm one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where there's bread. I drank deeply from the wellsprings of grace. God knows I need more of it. But if you watch me, you'll see some glimmerings of the Savior, and ultimately you'll want to fasten on to him. So watch me. So it raises the question, whom are you influencing? Who are you an influencer for towards this one pure and holy passion in their life? More of us need to be like Dave. Our church needs more Daves. People who will simply say, watch me. Let's hang out. Let me influence you towards this great ambition of knowing Christ and following hard after him. Now, that could be you. It really can be you. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to do this. Paul's expectation is that we would all be doing this, right? We'd be following Christ and we'll help people follow him too. And Paul is pressing them and us about this matter of example and influence for, we'll cover two reasons today in this little text. And the first is in the very next two verses. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and minds are set on earthly things. So so Paul is urging the church, he's urging us through his writings, to follow his example because there are other influencers out there who by the shape of their walk, there's that that idea again, their life, the way they live, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And this is evidently a frequent concern of Paul's because it's an ongoing threat to their faithfulness in following Jesus, these cross enemies. And it is for us, as we'll see too. And Paul warns them here about these people with tears. With tears. 
in part, I'm sure, because of the pain that he knows, this kind of rejection from people that he loves deeply, that, that it causes Jesus himself. But also, Paul has tears for those who are doing the rejecting. Because, right, we Christians love our enemies, right? It's the mark of a Christian. We love our, even our enemies. And Paul loves these enemies to the point of tears. Right? And this is important for those of you who blog or post on combative forums online where, the, where dialogue and conversation, if you want to call it that, runs hot. Right? You could put it this way. No tears, then no post. Right? If you don't have compassion for the people you're debating online, then don't post. Right? Not until you get your heart right and you actually care about the people you're interacting with online. Now, we don't know who these enemies of the cross are. But Paul's concern is first and foremost about their walk. So he's probably not focusing on false teachers as much here as he is false livers, right? People who are not living consistently with the message of the cross of Christ. And so again, I'm sounding a little bit like a broken record these days, but it's so important for, for the New Testament that you know the lives of your teachers, right? The people you let teach you. You know whether their life's consistent with it. And this is so very difficult to do with YouTube preachers, right? Unless you do some careful, intentional research to know who they are and what kind of references do they have what kind of recommend who's recommending them who that you trust would recommend this person for you to sit under their teaching in their life right this is hard to do if you only know what they post and not how they live paul is urging us follow the lives of those who mirror in their lives the sacrificial love of jesus right? that's vital so be careful church Whose teaching you sit under, whether it's in a situation like this or whether it's online, okay? Paul is warning us. He says, these influencers live as enemies of the cross. Their lives are at odds with the cross of Jesus. And it may be simply because they teach that suffering is not part of what, the way God works in our world. That it's not useful in God's hand to display his love and power in our lives. Um, so that when Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, they heavily redact this repeated teaching of Jesus. Um, and they say, following Jesus, no, it always makes you richer and healthier and better. So there's a teacher named John Avanzini. I ran across a quote from him on, from a TBN program where he says, Jesus had a nice house, a big house, and Jesus was handling big money, and he even wore designer clothes. I'm like, what gospel are you possibly reading that could lead you to that conclusion about Jesus? Right? Gloria Copeland writes about Mark 10.30, give $10 and receive $1,000. Give $1,000 and you'll receive $100,000. In short, she says, Mark 10.30 is a very good deal. Okay. 
So these kinds of influencers, Paul says, are enemies of the cross because they will not take it up and follow him as he demands, right? And as a result, he pens, these must have been the, the words he was weeping over, right? Verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. So he's got four powerful descriptors of who these people are. Their end is destruction, right? This is severe judgmental language, right? However life ends, you don't want your life to end this way. This is their, this is their end. It's destruction. Their God is their belly. And the way Paul uses this language of stomach, it, it doesn't always just mean food. It has more the idea of unbridled sensuality. Could be food. Could be things like sex. Think appetites here. Their God is their appetites. And their glory, he says, is their shame. And this is the same kind of shame language that he uses in a, in a strong passage back in Romans. St. Paul writing here, he says in Romans 1, For this reason God gave people up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts, there's that shame language, with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so Paul writes, they are glorying in what should have been shameful for them. You know, we have entire publications. You see them when you check out from the grocery store line, right? That are dedicated to this tragic inversion, celebrating in full view what once would have been shamefully secreted, right? They glory in their shame, Paul says. And last, he says, their minds are set on earthly things. I think he's... His concern is not so much that they are taking in great sunsets and mountain peaks. I think his concern is that they're they're, he's talking about what functions as God substitutes for them. Idols, they used to be called. Um, the creation over the creator, in a sense. There's a writer named James K.A. Smith. And he talks about an ad executive named Douglas Atkin who notes that a transformation has taken place in what's expected of the typical ad executive at a major corporation. Uh, rather than being responsible for design and packaging and promotion like they used to, the brand ma manager is now asked to create a meaning system for people through which they get identity and an understanding of the world. Advertising is asked, he says, to induce devotion by investing products with transcendence. So Atkin asked himself, what makes people exhibit cult-like devotion? And so he undertook, for the purposes of advertising and marketing, a study of cults precisely to figure out what could induce loyalty beyond reason to a brand. And when he heard people rhapsodize about sneakers or paper plates in terms that he described as evangelical, he realized that people join brands for the same reason they join cults or even religions, to belong and to make meaning. They ceased being merely customers and now identified themselves as disciples, as members of the tribe. You've heard that language. 
whether that tribe be Volkswagen owners or Starbucks drinkers or Mac users. The advertisements for these products do not convey information about them. Rather, they tell stories. They picture worlds of meaning and invite us to see ourselves within them. The goal of such marketing, and this is really really critical here, he says, this very secular documentary concludes is to fill the empty places where non-commercial institutions like schools and churches might have once done the job. If you listen to that closely, that should sound familiar to you, right? This snare is set for our souls countless times a day. The lure of soul satisfaction in gear made for the body is an empty promise, right? Soul satisfaction does not work from the outside in. What you wear will not satisfy you in here. Okay? The coffee you drink will not satisfy you in here. I know this is a shock to some of you. Um, you're, you're really into the coffee, right? No, but it's not going to satisfy your soul. Um, Paul has us as a cross, at a crossroads here, right? What will our one glorious ambition be? Okay. What are we going to hope in and long in supremely? There's a professor named Walter Hansen who's written on Philippians. He's super insightful. He says, Paul's readers have to make the choice. Either they will follow the enemies of the cross by setting their minds on earthly things, or they will follow Christ by having the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, chapter 2, that's humility. Paul does not offer any middle ground or middle way. Similar to Christ's challenge, you cannot serve both God and money, Paul's challenge will not allow his readers the possibility of serving two masters. Either their God is their stomach, their appetites, or they will consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Either they will pursue earthly things, or they will pursue the heavenward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, so church, beware. There are enemies of the cross everywhere, and they are daily recruiting you. Okay. And this leads us to that second reason that Paul is so pressed to ask them, imitate me, follow me, not these other, other people's example. He says, follow me. Um, it's because the way of Christ is so much more beautiful and soul-satisfying. Look at what he writes about it in verse 20 and 21. This is a contrast with these earthly-minded folk he just wrote about. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so when he talks about being a citizen, the people in Philippi's ears probably would have perked up because Philippi was a Roman colony and many of Philippi's citizens were Roman citizens. And this was the greatest empire in the world. With it, they received amazing rights and freedoms as Roman citizens. They had political rights uh, to vote, to run for office. They had legal rights. They had property rights, financial rights. They were protected from pu certain punishments. Could not happen to a Roman citizen, like being tortured or whipped or subject to the death penalty. 
You may remember the Apostle Paul invoking his Roman citizenship in the book of Acts to keep him from being flogged. It's a prerogative of a Roman citizen. It was the best status on earth at the time to be a Roman citizen with all of its rights and privileges um, to be protected by the greatest power on earth. It was the best thing on earth to be. Now, now does that sound familiar at all to you? It's, it's, it was for them like being an American citizen is to us today on steroids. Okay? The Philippians understood the benefits of citizenship. They were on equal footing with the great cities of Italy as Roman citizens. Full citizens of the great empire of Rome. And Paul says to us, but you are citizens of a greater empire, of a greater kingdom, um, the kingdom of heaven. You're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And this is a vivid contrast here, right, between those who are pursuing earthly pleasures and those who are focused on the kingdom of heaven. The glory that awaits us when Jesus returns far outweighs the best this world can do. He says that will then transform these aging, aching, vulnerable, expiring bodies of ours into something glorious. And he says to us, this is our current citizenship, not a future citizenship exclusively, right? It's current. You're citizens of heaven now, living in the church as an outpost of the kingdom of God. We have all the privileges of citizenship now, just like Philippi did of Rome. There's a fascinating story about a guy named Wilfredo Garza. And for, for 35 years, he lived as an illegal immigrant crossing the, the Mexican border into the United States to find work some days, some days not. He got caught four times during those years, sent back to Mexico. He would swim the Rio Grande, so he was so desperate to find, to find employment. Um, and... Uh, this continued to be his, his practice, always looking over his shoulder, wondering when he's going to get caught, until one day he mustered up the courage to go into an immigration attorney's office and see if he could find a way to legally enter the United States. And what they found was that his father had actually been born in the United States, in Texas, spent time working there, which meant that all this time, Wilfredo was actually a United States citizen. He possessed the papers, his father's birth certificate and work records that proved his citizenship, and yet he lived in guilt and fear. But now he's got a certificate of citizenship. He doesn't have to sneak across the border. He can walk through the main gate. And Paul says, we live now here as citizens of heaven, in this heavenly outpost called the church, as we wait for the coming of our king to claim all of this earthly territory as his own. Paul here is echoing what Jesus taught us to pray, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is now in heaven. Paul prays elsewhere, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, just like we sang. Come Jesus, establish your kingdom here. We're the outpost, we're waiting for it, we're looking for it. Ours is a greater king and a greater kingdom than the greatest of this earth, whether that's Rome in their day or America in ours. This is a far greater kingdom that we get to be part of. 
Professor Hansen writes about the Roman Empire that Caesar Augustus was given the title Savior of the World because of the way that he restored order and peace, not only in, in Rome, but throughout the provinces. Um, and so when Paul takes this term Savior and applies it to Jesus, Professor Hansen says this, he sharply puts Jesus Christ up in opposition to the imperial Savior, Caesar. And by applying that imperial title of Savior to Jesus Christ, Paul is explicitly and deliberately talking about Jesus in language that deeply subverts language that they commonly use to describe their emperor, Caesar. Paul redirects the focus of his readers from the Savior in Rome, Caesar Augustus, to the Savior in heaven, Jesus Christ the Lord. So in contrast to the enemies of the cross who set their minds on earthly powers, listen closely here. The Christians in Philippi are called to focus their trust and hope in the Lord and Savior above all earthly powers. The enemies of the cross followed the natural inclination of residents in Philippi to look to the emperor in Rome to exert his sovereign power to solve their problems, satisfy their appetites, rescue them from trouble, and protect them from danger. But the Christian who followed the example of Paul looked to Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. Their hope for the future is not fixed on Caesar, the Savior and Lord of the Roman Empire, but on Jesus Christ, the heavenly Lord and Savior of all. Okay. It's a good word for the Philippians in their day, and it's a good word for Americans in our day, right? Jesus is greater. Citizenship in his kingdom is greater and Paul asserts that supremacy when he says that Jesus has power that enables him to subject all things to himself, including Caesar, Caesar rather, and all leaders who consider themselves Caesaresque that have followed in his vein. Jesus is greater. And so you should align your life with Jesus, with the kingdom of heaven. You should begin to rearrange the order of your soul so that he is your one pure and holy passion, your great ambition, your magnificent obsession. And Paul says, imitate me. I can help you with this. I can show you the way. Here's a remarkable challenge from an unlikely source. Uh, in June 2017, there was a, a rock climber named Alex Honnold. He scaled El Capitan. It is a 3,000-foot granite rock in Yosemite National Park, widely considered the most challenging wall in the world. He was the first person to make the climb free solo okay, with no equipment or ropes. At one point, he was hanging from just his thumbs 1,000 feet above the ground. Now, uh, Honold lives most of the year out of a van a lifestyle known as dirtbagging, which he calls an intentional choice to prioritize your vocation. Listen to what he says. He says, I want to climb in the best places in the world. And that's my focus. That is his great ambition, right? So I'm willing to give up having stability, having a shower, having whatever in order to climb the way, uh, climb the way that I want. 
He says, I am probably more intentional with the way I live my life than virtually anybody. I have made clear choices about what I find value in, what risks I'm willing to take. I'm doing exactly what I love to do. It's very easy for someone sitting on the couch at home to condemn it as crazy and stupid, but I can justify all my choices. Can you say the same about your life? He's challenging us. Do we live by our one great and holy passion, our magnificent obsession, our greatest ambition? In order to do that, let me encourage you. Find someone you can imitate on this road. Even Paul said, I haven't arrived yet. Find someone who's a little farther along than you and and sit down with them, get coffee with them, and ask them, why do you follow Jesus the way you follow Jesus? Why do you love him like you love him? What is it? What helped you? Can I light my little candle off of your flame for a season? Can we do this kind of regularly? And if you're on the journey, if you're starting to get it and following Christ and loving Christ more is part of your rhythm and direction, Keep an eye out for someone you can invite along, right? Someone you can meet with, talk with, pray with about knowing Jesus and following hard after him, okay? It's that simple, right? Someone you can meet with and talk with, open the Bible with, pray with, and help love Jesus more. Know him and follow hard after him. Pass it on. Like Paul, pass it on. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. This is um, this is often daunting to us. We we feel inadequate. We're too aware of our failures and our shortcomings to want to say, "Hey, follow me." But Lord, we can say, "Hey, I've I'm a beggar that found bread. Can I show it to you too? Can I help you?" Can I help you know Jesus better or even for the first time? So Lord, help us. Give us faith that you can even use us. And I just pray you would you provide in this room and outside of this room beautiful mentoring relationships that encourage and, and raise up here follower after follower of Jesus whose magnificent obsession is to know and follow hard after you. Lord, have mercy on us and bless these matters. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.